welcome back to the program. Today we have talking heads and pundits. Back in the second half of the 20th century, we had writers, public intellectuals, whose ideas, attitudes, and personalities became part of our public discourse. Gore Vidal was one of those. He wrote about history, about sex, about politics, sometimes all at once. He wrote nonfiction, novels, movies, and was the guest you always wanted to have at your dinner party. But he was also one of the bad boys of American letters. His rapier wit and insults pushed away as many people as admired him. But like most complex figures, the public surfaces were only part of the story. To get deeper, we have the work of my guest, Michael Mushaw, a longtime friend of Vidal's who's just written Sympathy for the Devil, Four Decades of Friendship with Gore Vidal. Michael Mushaw, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your initial meeting with Gore Vidal back in Rome. Well, that was a, a long time ago. In 1975, I uh, moved to Rome for a year with my wife and with, with then my infant son, Sean. And uh, I had Vidal's phone number through a mutual friend. Um, I was in my early 30s. I had published a couple of um, novels, uh, completely unknown. But I called Vidal, and he immediately said, well, come over and have a drink with me. And uh, and so my wife and I went over and had a drink, and the drink developed into dinner. And the dinner developed into a, a friendship of 37 years. What preconceptions, if any, did you have going into that dinner? What did you know about Vidal? What did you expect? Um, you know, I expected that this uh, patrician... Um, uh, extremely frosty um, and withering guy. Um, I was willing to subject myself to that because I thought it would be fascinating to meet somebody of his celebrity and of his uh, uh, reputation. But I, I expected him to be um, borderline distasteful, and because uh, that's the way he had been presented in the press, and uh, and then frequently on television, funny as I thought he was. Uh, he had, as you point out, a rapier wit, and uh, he could cut the knees right out from under the likes of Norman Mailer or William F. Buckley, and <laughs> I, I thought he was certainly likely to do it to me, too, if he deigned to to try. But that, that was my expectation. It wasn't the reality, though. I found him to be a much, much different guy. What was the reality? Talk a little bit about how the, your friendship with him began to evolve. Um, I should mention that Gore was 50. He just turned 50. Um, um, he, he admitted uh, that very night that I met him that he had the blues, that he was feeling melancholy, not just by virtue of the fact that he had turned 50, but uh, um, he, he just felt melancholy. And I think uh, uh, what I saw in him was, or the incipient signs of, of depression, and uh, I, I think part of our relationship um, depended upon or, or was the result of my being especially sensitive to this. My mother was a manic depressive, uh, bipolar person, so I was very used to being around depressed people. I, I knew the, the sort of signs of it, and um, uh, it, it humanized him as far as I was concerned. It made him seem vulnerable. and. Uh, our relationship uh, um, continued from there because, I mean, I, I, we, we talked. Uh, I asked questions. He answered, um, even questions that you know, other people might consider, you know, too intrusive for um, somebody you had just met. Uh, Gore answered with, with a plum, and um, we continued to see one another. Rome in those days was a. Um, a very interesting place. There were lots of writers and artists and filmmakers there, and uh, in the normal routine, the social routine, we kept running into each other. And um, I, 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 I was going to say, and hit it off. Well, you know, it, he certainly hit it off with me. I don't know what his feelings were about me, but he continued to invite us to his house or to his parties, and and we returned the favor. And what was your sense of, of what he saw, what he felt about this friendship? Um, 
he was not a, con a, a conventional person. He wasn't the sort of person who would, uh, you know, say, uh, you mean so much to me, or um, um, I enjoy enormously having you around, or something. Uh, he didn't, he, he wasn't warm and fuzzy, by his own admission. Uh, uh, I, I think that he enjoyed my company because I believe I could keep up with him, and um, he could be wickedly funny, and uh, I like to think I could be wickedly funny too, but I certainly appreciated his wicked sense of humor. Um, I think he was, uh, you know, I, th I think he was lonely. Um, he lived in Rome uh, partly so he was able to work without being um, bothered with a lot of intrusions, but it did get lonely there, and I think when he, when he had people who were around him who were convivial, um, and who accepted him for what he was and didn't give him a lot of grief about his political beliefs or his sexuality. I think he appreciated it. There did seem to be, and and it's unclear even in, as you write about it with respect to how much of it was alcohol-induced, a, a certain paranoia that he had about life in general and about the people around him. Talk a little bit about that. Um, I, 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 I think... Um, you know, the question is, was he depressed because he drank, or did he drink because he was depressed? I'm not really in a position to say which, but I think there w there was a, pa a paranoia about him, and he, his comment was, um, if you're not paranoid, then you're not in full possession of the facts. I think he felt people were after him, and let's face it, um, in even in that pre-internet era, when people couldn't post things uh, that were insulting or eviscerating online and 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 hide behind them anonymously, uh, there were there was a lot that was said about Vidal and printed about Vidal in the likes of the New York Times and elsewhere that was extremely vituperative and very very negative. Um, uh, I, I think, although he did his best to pretend it didn't touch him, it didn't hurt him. I think it did. I mean, I think you can't be called the kinds of names that he was called, or you can't be dismissed and put down in the way that he was as a young man and come out of it unscathed. Um, I mean, I think uh, his paranoia may have started, you know, with his upbringing and his family, where with a mother who was completely in, um, indifferent to him, was too too busy trying to find the next rich man, and a father who was. Um, uh, about his own business and not really interested. I think Vidal lived a, a, an extremely isolated and uh, unhappy childhood. And, and then when he sort of openly um, acknowledged not his own sexuality, but the possibility of, of normal sexual relations between men, um, he suffered a lot of um, public obloquy and... Um, and uh, I, I think his political views, which for that time were extremely um, radical or leftist, I think he suffered um, some backlash for that as well. And uh, his way of dealing with that uh, was to be aggressive. I think most of us would have backed off and changed our behavior, but he, till the end of his life, continued to fight fire with fire. He, he had a, an admirably... Um, combative side to him. Indeed. Was there a sense that he had of that being a kind of vicious cycle that, you know, his insults and his and the sharpness of his wit and the things that he said about others in some ways engendered an awful lot of the criticism of him, things that, that, that he was paranoid about? Well, as I, as I say in the book, I, I don't think that he, he, that he gave any sign of being aware of how... Um, this resulted in a vicious cycle. I, I don't think that he felt that what he said or what he did um, should result in the kind of vindictiveness that other people felt toward him or, or a simple self-protection that people felt. I mean, he was capable of saying things to people, and then when they reacted negatively, he, he was befuddled. And uh, I, But I think at, at some level, of course, he must have known, and he must have said some of these things with the intention of offending or of trying to force people to think about things in different ways. And uh, 
I remember sitting in on an interview that he was giving to the late Barbara Grizzuti Harrison, who wrote a very flowery book about Italy, and she asked him, why do you love Rome? Why do you live here? Is it the light? Is it the language? Is it the, the food? And he sort of leaned back and uh, with a gimlet-eyed stare said, I liked it because when I came here after World War II, you could go up to the Borghese Gardens and buy any man you wanted for 500 lira. And uh, that's the sort of thing that I think uh, got up a lot of people's noses, and he must have been aware of that. Uh, <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, he he was a guy who could who, who didn't suffer fools, um, and, but then was surprised when those fools came after him. <laughs> You know, in print. You mentioned Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley, two people that he sparred with repeatedly over the years. Talk a little bit about his attitudes towards the two of them. I, I, well, I think they they're very different people mm-hmm. uh, um, politically and creatively and and otherwise. And I think uh, with Mailer, he had a more conflicted and ambitious relationship. They had been friends at one time, and then they had a great falling out, and then toward the end of their lives, uh, they were back uh, as friends again. As a matter of fact, Mailer said, I hope after I die you'll marry my wife, Norris Church. Uh, uh, <laughs> Gore said, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> uh, with Buckley, I think he truly disliked Buckley, and, uh, and I think Buckley returned the favor. I don't think there was much in the way of ambivalence there. Um, I think that Gore represented something or, or a series of somethings that Buckley sincerely detested, and I think that uh, Vidal found Buckley a pretty vile person as well. Um, um, uh, so I, I, I take much more seriously his cont- contention with Buckley. When I say seriously, I think intellectually I take that uh, opposition more seriously than the flurries with Mailer that I think were more a matter of personality or and of heavy drinking, by the way. It's interesting that his animosity with Buckley and the battles that they had really accrued to the benefit of both of them in many respects. Right, right. Well, if you think about it now, I mean, the divide that uh, has riven America for the past few decades, blue states, red states, and so forth, it was then in the late 60s that it became abundantly apparent that uh, 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 there were people who not only were not on the same page but weren't in the same book i mean <laughs> they weren't in the same literature i mean and i think that's what we have in a, in america today i think there are people who uh, on both sides who are uh, pretty entrenched in their positions and are uh, pretty intolerant and i'm not just speaking you know, right-wing Republicans being intolerant. I mean, it's it's possible to be a Democrat and on the left and intolerant, too, and not wanting to hear what the other side has to say. Talk a little bit about his, his time that he spent in Los Angeles, where he also spent quite a bit of time as well as, as in Rome. Yeah, I, you know, toward the end of his life, he said that um, his whole life was fueled by rage and the way that he expressed his preference for living in Los Angeles was because it constantly enraged him, <laughs> and a perverse way of looking at it. But I, you know, he, his lifelong partner Howard Austin was um, somebody who loved Hollywood, who loved the glitter and loved the the glitz of Hollywood. And Gore himself was often involved in screenwriting and um, wrote a great deal about Hollywood as well as writing for it. And then, of course, toward the end of his life, he became an actor himself and was in a number of films. Uh, so I think um, in in brief, uh, well, not in brief spurts, but spurts of a couple of months, it, Gore enjoyed being in L.A. And toward the end of his life, I remember visiting him. Um, uh, this was quite late after Howard had died, and he and he was living in Los Angeles more or less uh, permanently, and he said that, that he liked it because he continued to be invited to the best uh, dinner parties, and that he was often um, partnered with Nancy Reagan, whom he got to like enormously. 
um, this is an aspect of the doll that I don't entirely understand. I mean, <laughs> you know, somebody who had been a lifelong enemy suddenly becomes a friend. I mean, Gore did like top people, you know, and I think he enjoyed the feeling of of uh, uh, squiring around the president's widow. How much of it with him, and, and certainly, and certainly in some cases, it seems to have been true that it was more about being a contrarian or taking positions that would really get hackles up on the other side than any deeply held conviction? That's, that's really difficult um, to determine. But I think one does have to keep in mind, that, as I said, Gore wound up as an actor, and he was going to call his... Uh, his memoir, Palimpsest, his original title for it was An Actor Prepares. Um, you know, he was a performer. He was a person who uh, adopted a, a persona, an image, uh, with total consciousness of what um, the effect might be. And I'm, I wasn't always sure of how deeply he, he actually believed in what he was saying. And I, I think he was tempted... Uh, as many of us are, if you become entrenched in your views, then then you begin taking very extreme views. I think toward the end of his life when he got involved with Timothy McVeigh and defending him, I, I don't really think that represented what Gore in a reasonable way would think. But I, I've seen this with a lot of writers as they age. I mean, I, I saw it with Graham Greene, too, who, um, you know, a guy who had taken contrarian views and wound up supporting the dictator of Panama for reasons that I don't think he could ever explain. The other area in in the political realm where Vidal came in for so much criticism, and, and a lot of it pretty hostile, was with respect to his views on Israel and Zionism. Um, you know, I think his, his, his views on uh, Israel and Zionism have to be separated from the way that he expressed those views. I think that he had some reasonable comments to make about about Israel, or especially about Zionism. Uh, I do not think he was anti-Semitic. As he pointed out, he lived with a guy who was Jewish his whole life. Um, um, I, I don't think he was anti-Semite, but I think that his way of cavalierly expressing those views often put him at a great disadvantage. Gore was a guy who was capable of uh, terrific nuance and subtlety, but in that, on that particular subject, he seemed pretty ham-handed to me, and I think that he, he brought down on himself a, a great deal of criticism, and he lost um, a great number of friends and potential supporters because of the intemperate nature of his criticisms of Israel. How much did he like fame? and being in the public spotlight. Oh, I think he, he liked it enormously. He liked it enormously. Um, and, you know, the idea that at the in his mid-80s, at death's door, that he was still being interviewed and traveling around and going to various festivals and uh, so forth, at a time when he really shouldn't have, when his health um, should have precluded that, and when his... Um, his emotional health should have precluded it. Um, I, I think he liked that. He liked the rush. He liked to be up in front of an audience, um, even though at the end he was saying things that um, sometimes didn't always add up. I think he was. Um, I think he was, in his way, a fame junkie. Mm -hmm. Did he distinguish between the public persona? the fame, all of the, the political views, all of the things that we've been talking about, was that separate and apart in any way from the writing, from, from his work when he sat down to write? Uh, yes, I mean, and in a way, he was able to compartmentalize uh, and, and uh, to do so in a fashion that I think is almost flabbergasting. I mean, he, he never let his very active social life uh, interfere with his writing schedule. Um, and I've seen him go to bed late at night, you know, falling down drunk, and getting, but getting up the next morning and putting in four or five hours at his desk. 
Uh, he was quite disciplined about his, his work and about his writing. Um, and uh, that was the core of his life. And I think um, I spent a, a, a great deal of time in Ravello at his villa there, La Rondinaia, which is often presented in magazines like Architectural Digest as this sort of paradisial place. But it was really a kind of place purpose-built for work. It was extraordinarily isolated. It wasn't particularly comfortable, especially in winter. And he would sit down in the office there in front of this fireplace at his desk uh, and uh, uh, come high, hell or high water, he would turn out the requisite number of pages each day. Talk a little bit about the alcohol, because it does seem to be a theme that comes back over and over again. It was a big part of his life. Right. I, I, the, the thing that I try to stress, and, and there's a precariousness about mentioning his alcoholism or his deterioration because of alcohol, because many people feel it's cruel to emphasize that, or it's a violation of friendship to do so, but so many people were, in effect, enablers of his during his lifetime, and so many people would say, um, he drinks prodigious amounts, but I've never seen him drunk. Um, even his biography the, by Fred Kaplan made that point, and they took Gore at his own word, which is which he said until the end of his life, I don't ever get drunk. I don't, I don't, whiskey doesn't affect me at all. It just helps me to sleep. I mean, the fact of the matter is he was an extraordinarily, um, uh, he was an extraordinary drinker in the amounts that he drank, but he also suffered as a consequence, and he was frequently not just tipsy or feeling out of sorts. I mean, he was a falling down blackout drunk and um, alcoholic, I put, to put it more specifically. Toward the end of his life, as I understand, you know, he was found to have Korsakoff syndrome, which is um, a brain dysfunction that is caused by excess alcohol con consumption. Um, in, in, in a way, this is the, um, uh, you know, the, the ugly truth about many of the most famous American writers of the 20th century, Faulkner, Hemingway, Tennessee Williams, you know, Raymond Carver, you know, all of them had terrible problems with alcohol. And uh, Vidal, when I first knew him, used to make fun of writers who he felt had uh, suffered um, their reputations had suffered and their work had declined because of their alcoholism but ultimately he fell into that same category Was he aware of that? What degree of self-awareness did he have? On that subject it seemed to me he had no awareness um, I mean not that he expressed he, he was the sort of person and I'm sure you have too I've known many heavy drinkers and I've known many alcoholics in my life um, and many of them feel as long as I get up in the morning and go to work, I'm not an alcoholic, or as, as long as it doesn't affect my production, I'm, an, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, he, he knew he drank a lot, but he said, uh, um, I can handle it, I can deal with it. Um, and when you pointed out the physical consequences of this, the ill health that he suffered, or when you pointed out the... the potential uh, problems that it was having um, in his career, uh, he simply he simply denied it. Now, there were times, and I point this out at the book, I mean, in the book, I mean, when his depression got so serious that he talked of dying, he talked of suicide, and, uh, um, and that he expressed an awareness that his weapon of choice as a suicide potential was um, or a potential suicide was was drinking he was aware that it was going to kill him to what extent was he tuned into the depression and 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 did he ever seek any help for it no he never sought help for it he thought psychotherapy was a <clears throat> form of mumbo jumbo or voodoo and um, he would laughingly claim he didn't have an unconscious or subconscious mind it was all right on the surface um he uh, he said he would say I'm melancholy. I don't. I'm you know, and he would claim most middle-aged men are. But he would. I don't think he would never. He would never have admitted that he was cl 
clinically depressed that, that he needed to be treated for it. I mean, I, I, I really don't think that he would ever have considered taking an antidepressant or, uh, any more than he would have been seeking out talk therapy. I think he was of that generation of men mm-hmm. who didn't feel it was the, what you should do. Looking at the whole picture, when, what's the greatest public misperception about Vidal? Well, as he used to put it, he felt people viewed him as a bad man, and therefore he must be a bad writer. Um, I don't think Gore was a bad man. I once did an essay on him called Gore Vidal, Pure, um, uh, Puritan Moralist. I think he he was someone who had very uh, a very deep commitment to justice, equality, um, uh, I think his politics um, uh, and his political judgment was more often than not quite accurate. Um, I think the misperception of him is that he was a, a, a kind of, because of his sexual deviance, as people would have seen it back in the 50s and 60s, that his thought in other areas was should be easy to dismiss and that he was a kind of wacko. Um, uh, I, I don't think that was the case. I think that he was a kind of national resource, and I think in a in a different context, if we were talking about a European writer, he would be the kind of writer that uh, in Italy or France or Great Britain, who when he dies, the story's on the front page, and you know the president of the republic turns out to lay a wreath on his grave. He was a, an important cultural figure, but. Um, um, he had the misfortune of being born at the wrong time in the wrong place. Michael Mushaw, the, the book program. is Sympathy Today for the Devil, Four Decades of Friendship with Gore Vidal. Half of the 20th Michael, century. I thank you so much for writers, spending time with us public today. intellectuals whose ideas, attitudes, and personalities became part of our public discourse. Gore Vidal was one of those. He wrote about history, about sex, about politics, sometimes all at once. He wrote nonfiction, novels, movies, and was the guest you always wanted to have at your dinner party. But he was also one of the bad boys of American letters. His rapier wit and insults pushed away as many people as admired him. But like most complex figures, the public surfaces were only part of the story. To get deeper, we have the work of my guest, Michael Mushaw, a longtime friend of Vidal's who's just written Sympathy for the Devil, Four Decades of Friendship with Gore Vidal. Michael Mushaw, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your initial meeting with Gore Vidal back in Rome. Well, that was a a long time ago. In 1975, I moved to Rome for a year with my wife and then my infant son, Sean. And uh, I had Vidal's phone number through a mutual friend. Um, I was in my early 30s. I had published a couple of um, novels, uh, completely unknown. But I called Vidal, and he immediately said, well, come over and have a drink with me. And uh, and so my wife and I went over and had a drink, and the drink developed into dinner. And the dinner developed into a, a friendship of 37 years. What preconceptions, if any, did you have going into that dinner. What did you know about Vidal? What did you expect? Um, you know, I expected that this uh, patrician, um, uh, extremely frosty um, and withering guy. Um, I was willing to subject myself to that because I thought it would be fascinating to meet somebody of his celebrity and of his uh, uh, reputation. But I, I expected him to be... Uh, borderline distasteful and because uh, that's the way he had been presented in the press and uh, and then frequently on television funny as I thought he was uh, he had as you point out a rapier wit and uh, he could cut the knees right out from under the likes of Norman Mailer or William F. Buckley and mm-hmm. I, I thought he was certainly likely to do it to me too if he deigned to to try but that, that was my expectation. It wasn't the reality, though. I found him to be a much, much different guy. What was the reality? Talk a little bit about how the, your friendship with him began to evolve. Um, I should mention that Gore was 50. He just turned 50. Um, um, he, he admitted uh, that very night that I met him that he, 
had the blues, that he was feeling melancholy, not just by virtue of the fact that he had turned 50, but uh, um, he, he just felt melancholy. And I think uh, uh, what I saw in him was, or the incipient signs of, of depression. And uh, I, I think part of our relationship um, depended upon, or, or was the result of my being especially sensitive to this. My mother was a manic depressive uh, bipolar person, so I was very used to being around depressed people. I, I knew the, the sort of signs of it, and um, uh, it, it humanized him as far as I was concerned. It made him seem vulnerable, and uh, our relationship uh, um, continued from there because, I mean, I I we we talked. Uh, I asked questions. He answered. Um, even questions that you know, other people might consider, you know, too intrusive for um, somebody you just met. Uh, Gore answered with with a plum, and um, we continue to see one another. Rome in those days was a um, a very interesting place. There were lots of writers and artists and filmmakers there, and. Uh, in the normal routine, the social routine, we kept running into each other, and um, I, 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 I was going to say, and hit it off. Well, you know, he certainly hit it off with me. I don't know what his feelings were about me, but he continued to invite us to his house or to his parties, and and we returned the favor. And what was your sense of of what he saw, what he felt about this friendship? Um, he, he was not a, con, a, a conventional person. He wasn't the sort of person who would, uh, you know, say, uh, you mean so much to me, or um, um, I enjoy enormously having you around, or something. Uh, he didn't, he, he wasn't warm and fuzzy, by his own admission. Uh, uh, I, I think that he enjoyed my company because I believe I could keep up with him, and um he could be wickedly funny, and uh, I like to think I could be wickedly funny too. But I certainly appreciated his wicked sense of humor. Um, I think he was, uh, you know, I, th- I think he was lonely. Um, he lived in Rome uh, partly so he was able to work without being um, bothered with a lot of intrusions. But it did get lonely there, and I think when he when he had people who were around him who were convivial. Um, and who accepted him for what he was and didn't give him a lot of grief about his political beliefs or his sexuality. I think he appreciated it. There did seem to be, and and it's unclear even in, as you write about it with respect to how much of it was alcohol-induced, a, a certain paranoia that he had about life in general and about the people around him. Talk a little bit about that. Um, I, 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 I think... Um, you know, the question is, was he depressed because he drank, or did he drink because he was depressed? I'm not really in a position to say which, but I think there w- there was a, pa- a paranoia about him, and he, his comment was, um, if you're not paranoid, then you're not in full possession of the facts. I think he felt people were after him, and let's face it, um, in even in that pre-internet era, when people couldn't post things uh, that were insulting or eviscerating online and 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 hide behind them anonymously, uh, there were there was a lot that was said about Vidal and printed about Vidal in the likes of the New York Times and elsewhere that was extremely vituperative and very very negative. Um, uh, I, I think, although he tr- did his best to pretend it didn't touch him, it didn't hurt him. I think it did. I mean, I think you can't be called the kinds of names that he was called, or you can't be dismissed and put down in the way that he was as a young man and come out of it unscathed. Um, I mean, I think uh, his paranoia may have started, you know, with his upbringing in his family, where with a mother who was completely in, um, indifferent to him, was too too busy trying to find the next rich man, and a father who was. Um, uh, about his own business and not really interested. I think Vidal lived a, a, an extremely isolated and uh, unhappy childhood and, and 
than when he sort of openly um, acknowledged not his own sexuality, but the possibility of of normal sexual relations between men. Um, he suffered a lot of um, public obloquy, and um, and uh, I, I think his political views, which for that time were extremely um, radical or leftist, I think he suffered um, some backlash for that as well. And uh, his way of dealing with that uh, was to be aggressive. I think most of us would have backed off and changed our behavior, but he, to the end of his life, continued to fight fire with fire. He, he had a, an admirably um, combative side to him. Indeed. Was there a sense that he had of that being a kind of vicious cycle, that, you know, his insults and his and the sharpness of his wit and the things that he said about others in some ways engendered an awful lot of the criticism of him, things that, that, that he was paranoid about? Well, as I, as I say in the book, I, I don't think that he that he gave any sign of being aware of how um, this resulted in a vicious cycle. I, I don't think that he felt that what he said or what he did um, should result in the kind of vindictiveness that other people felt toward him or, or a simple self-protection that people felt. I mean, he was capable of saying things to people, and then when they reacted negatively, he, he was befuddled. And uh, I, but I think at at some level, of course, he must have known, and he must have said some of these things with the intention of offending or of trying to force people to think about things in different ways. And uh, I remember sitting in on an interview that he was giving to the late Barbara Grizzuti Harrison, who wrote a very flowery book about Italy, and she asked him, why do you love Rome? Why do you live here? Is it the light? Is it the language? Is it the, the food? And he sort of leaned back and then with a gimlet-eyed stare said, I liked it because when I came here after World War II, you could go up to the Borghese Gardens and buy any man you wanted for 500 lira. And uh, that's the sort of thing that I think uh, got up a lot of people's noses, and he must have been aware of that. Uh, <laughs> No, but uh, you know he—he he was a guy who could, who, who didn't suffer fools, um, and but then was surprised when those fools came after him, you know, in print. You mentioned Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley, two people that he sparred with repeatedly over the years. Talk a little bit about his attitudes towards the two of them. I, I, well, I think they—they're very different people mm -hmm. uh, um, politically and creatively and and otherwise and I think uh, with Mailer he had a more conflicted and ambivalent relationship they had been friends at one time and then they had a great falling out and then toward the end of their lives uh, they were back uh, as friends again as a matter of fact Mailer said I hope after I die you'll marry my wife Norris Church <laughs> Gore said I'm thinking about it <laughs> Uh, with Buckley, I think he truly disliked Buckley, and uh, and I think Buckley returned the favor. I don't think there was much in the way of ambivalence there. Um, I think that Gore represented something, or or a series of somethings that Buckley sincerely detested, and I think that uh, Vidal found Buckley a pretty vile person as well. Um, um, uh, so I, I I take much more seriously his. Contention with Buckley. When I say seriously, I think intellectually, I take that opposition more seriously than the flurries with Mailer that I think were more a matter of personality or and of heavy drinking, by the way. It's interesting that his animosity with Buckley and the battles that they had really accrued to the benefit of both of them in many respects. Right, right. Well, if you think about it now, I mean... The divide that uh, has riven America for the past few decades, blue states, red states, and so forth, it was then in the late 60s that it became abundantly apparent that uh, uh, there were people who not only were not on the same page, but weren't in the same book. I mean, <laughs> they were 
in the same literature. I mean, and I think that's what we have in a, in America today. I think there are people who, uh, on both sides, who are uh, pretty entrenched in their positions and are uh, pretty intolerant. And I'm not just speaking, you know, of right-wing Republicans being intolerant. I mean, it's, it's possible to be a Democrat and on the left and intolerant, too, and not wanting to hear what the other side has to say. Talk a little bit about his his time that he spent in Los Angeles, where he also spent quite a bit of time as well as as in Rome. Yeah, I, you know, toward the end of his life, he said that uh, his whole life was fueled by rage, and the way that he expressed his preference for living in Los Angeles was because it constantly enraged him, <laughs> and a perverse way of looking at it. But I, you know. He, his lifelong partner, Howard Austin, was um, somebody who loved Hollywood, who loved the glitter and loved the, the glitz of Hollywood. And Gore himself was often involved in screenwriting and um, wrote a great deal about Hollywood as well as writing for it. And then, of course, toward the end of his life, he became an actor himself and was in a number of films. Uh, so I think... Um, in in brief, uh, well, not in brief spurts, but spurts of a couple of months, it, Gore enjoyed being in L.A. And toward the end of his life, I remember visiting him. Um, uh, this was quite late after Howard had died, and he and he was living in Los Angeles more or less uh, permanently. And he said that that he liked it because he continued to be invited to the best uh, dinner parties, and that he was often. Um, partnered with Nancy Reagan, whom he got to like enormously. Um, this is an aspect of the doll that I don't entirely understand. I mean, <laughs> you know, somebody who had been a lifelong enemy suddenly becomes a friend. I mean, Gore did like top people, you know, and I think he enjoyed the feeling of, of uh, uh, squiring around the president's widow. How much of it with him, and, and, certainly, and certainly in some cases it seems to have been true, that it was more about being a contrarian or taking positions that would really get hackles up on the other side than any deeply held conviction? That's, that's really difficult um, to determine. But I think one does have to keep in mind, as I said, Gore wound up as an actor and he was going to call his uh, his memoir Palimpsest. His original title for it was "An Actor Prepares." Um, you know, he was a performer. He was a person who uh, adopted uh, a persona, an image, uh, with total consciousness of what um, the effect might be. And I'm, I wasn't always sure of how deeply he he actually believed in what he was saying. And I, I think he was tempted, uh, as many of us are, if you become entrenched in your views, then, then you begin taking very extreme views. I think toward the end of his life when he got involved with Timothy McVeigh and defending him, I, I don't really think that represented what Gore in a reasonable way would think. But I've seen this with a lot of writers as they age. I mean, I, I saw it with Graham Greene, too, who, um, you know, a guy who had taken contrarian views and wound up supporting the dictator of Panama for reasons that I don't think he could ever explain. The other area in in the political realm where Vidal came in for so much criticism, and, and a lot of it pretty hostile, was with respect to his views on Israel and Zionism. Um, you know, I think his 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 views on uh, Israel and Zionism have to be separated from the way that he expressed those views. I think that he had some reasonable comments to make about about Israel or especially about Zionism. Uh, I do not think he was anti-Semitic, as he pointed out. He lived with a guy who was Jewish his whole life. Um, um, I, I don't think he was anti-Semite, but I think that his way of cavalierly expressing those views often put him at a great disadvantage. Gore was a guy who was capable of uh, terrific nuance and subtlety, but in that on that particular subject, he seemed pretty ham-handed to me, and I think that he he brought down on himself a, a great deal of criticism, 
and he lost um, a great number of friends and potential supporters because of the intemperate nature of his criticisms of Israel. How much did he like fame and being in the public spotlight? Oh, I think he, he liked it enormously. He liked it enormously. Um, and, you know, the idea that at the in his mid-80s, at death's door, that he was still being interviewed and traveling around and going to various festivals and uh, so forth at a time when he really shouldn't have, when his health um, should have precluded that and when his um, his emotional health should have precluded it. Um, I, I think he liked that. He liked the rush. He liked to be up in front of an audience, um, even though at the end he was saying things that um, sometimes didn't always add up. I think he was... Um, I think he was, in his way, a fame junkie. Mm -hmm. Did he distinguish between the public persona, the fame, all of the, the political views, all of the things that we've been talking about? Was that separate and apart in any way from the writing, from, from his work when he sat down to write? Uh, yes. I mean, and in a way, he was able to compartmentalize uh, and and uh, to do so in a fashion that I think is almost flabbergasting. I mean, he, he never let his very active social life uh, interfere with his writing schedule. Um, and I've seen him go to bed late at night, you know, falling down drunk, and getting, but getting up the next morning and putting in four or five hours at his desk. Uh, he was quite disciplined about his, his work and about his writing. Um, and uh, that was the core of his life. And I think um, I spent a, a, a great deal of time in Ravello at his villa there, La Rondinaya, which is often presented in magazines like Architectural Digest as this sort of paradisial place. But uh, it was really a kind of place purpose-built for work. It was extraordinarily isolated. It wasn't particularly comfortable, especially in winter. And he would sit down in the office there in front of this fireplace at his desk uh, and uh, uh, come high, hell or high water, he would turn out the requisite number of pages each day. Talk a little bit about the alcohol, because it does seem to be a theme that comes back over and over again. It was a big part of his life. Right. I... I the the thing that I try to stress, and, and there's a precariousness about mentioning his alcoholism or his deterioration because of alcohol, because many people feel it's cruel to emphasize that or it's a violation of friendship to do so, but so many people were, in effect, enablers of his during his lifetime, and so many people would say, um, he drinks prodigious amounts, but I've never seen him drunk. Um, even his biography the, by Fred Kaplan made that point. And they took Gore at his own word, which, which he said until the end of his life, I don't ever get drunk. I don't, I don't, whiskey doesn't affect me at all. It just helps me to sleep. I mean, the fact of the matter is he was an extraordinarily, um, uh, he was an extraordinary drinker in the amounts that he drank, but he also suffered as a consequence, and he was frequently not just tipsy or feeling out of sorts. I mean, he was a falling down, blackout drunk and um, alcoholic, I, um, put, to put it more specifically. Toward the end of his life, as I understand, you know, he was found to have Korsakoff syndrome, which is um, a brain dysfunction that is caused by excess alcohol con consumption. Um, in a way, this is the, um, uh, you know, the, the ugly truth about many of the most famous American writers of the 20th century, Faulkner, Hemingway, Tennessee Williams, you know, Raymond Carver, you know, all of them had terrible problems with alcohol. And uh, Vidal, when I first knew him, used to make fun of writers who he felt had uh, suffered um, their reputations had suffered and their work had declined because of their alcoholism but ultimately he fell into that same category was he aware of that what degree of self-awareness did he have 
on that subject, it seemed to me he had no awareness. Um, I mean, not that he expressed. He, he was the sort of person, and I'm sure you have too. I've known many heavy drinkers, and I've known many alcoholics in my life. Um, and many of them feel as long as I get up in the morning and go to work, I'm not an alcoholic. Or as, as long as it doesn't affect my production, I'm, an, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, he, he knew he drank a lot, but he said, uh, um, I can handle it, I can deal with it. Um, and when you pointed out the physical consequences of this, the ill health that he suffered, or when you pointed out the, the potential uh, problems that it was having um, in his career, uh, he simply he simply denied it. Now, there were times, and I point this out at the book, I mean, in the book, I mean, when his depression got so serious that he talked of dying, he talked of suicide, and... Uh, um, and that he expressed an awareness that his weapon of choice as a suicide potential was, um, or a potential suicide was, was drinking. That he was aware that it was going to kill him. To what extent was he tuned into the depression, and 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 did he ever seek any help for it? No, he never sought help for it. He thought psychotherapy was a <clears throat> form of mumbo jumbo. Or, Voodoo, and um, he would laughingly claim he didn't have an unconscious or subconscious mind. It was all right on the surface. Um, he uh, he said he would say, "I'm melancholy." I don't, I'm you know, and he would claim most middle-aged men are. But he would. I don't think he would never. He would never have admitted that he was clinically depressed, that that he needed to be treated for it. I mean, I I, I really don't think that he would ever have considered taking an antidepressant or uh, any more than he would have been seeking out talk therapy. I think he was of that generation of men mm-hmm. who didn't feel it was the what you should do. Looking at the whole picture, what what's the greatest public misperception about Vidal? Well, as he used to put it, he felt people viewed him as a bad man, and therefore he must be a bad writer. Um, I don't think Gore was a bad man. I, I once did an essay on him called Gore Vidal, Pure, um, uh, Puritan Moralist. I think he, he was someone who had very, uh, a very deep commitment to justice, equality, um, uh, I think his politics um, uh, and his political judgment was more often than not quite accurate. Um, I think the misperception of him is that he was a, a, a kind of, because of his sexual deviance, as people would have seen it back in the 50s and 60s, that his thought in other areas was should be easy to dismiss and that he was a kind of wacko. Um, uh, I, I don't think that was the case. I think that he was a kind of national resource, and I think in a in a different context, if we were talking about a European writer, he would be the kind of writer that uh, in Italy or France or Great Britain, who when he dies, the story's on the front page, and you know the president of the republic turns out to lay a wreath on his grave. He was a, an important cultural figure, but. Um, um, he had the misfortune of being born at the wrong time in the wrong place. Michael Mushaw, the book is Sympathy for the Devil, Four Decades of Friendship with Gore Vidal. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. My thank, pleasure. Thank you. We'll thank take you. a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 